Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's my pleasure to introduce uh, Julia Haas to you. Uh, Julia Haas is an international law and human rights expert. In her work, she has focused on international relations, the intersection of technology and human rights and the prevention of marginalization. She particularly focuses on policy research and development in the field of internet governance and digital participation, leading the project on the impact of artificial intelligence on freedom of expression and working on digital safety of women journalists at the office of the OSCE. That's one of the interesting parts. And in particular, they are at the Office of the Representative on Freedom of the Media. Previously, she worked as a legal officer and human rights advisor at the uh, Austrian Ministry for Europe, Integration and Foreign Affairs. And she sits on the advisory board for the Vienna Forum for Democracy and Human Rights, holds a master's degree in law from the University of Vienna. So she's an alumna of our faculty. Um, she holds, an, an, in addition to this, an LLM and Master of Laws from the University of Vienna in, in Information and Media Law. And she's a candidate, a PhD candidate on the impact of digital innovations on media freedom. So she's probably one of the most qualified people in this country when we talk about artificial intelligence and platform moderation and, um, and content moderation during um, a pandemic. But there is also a very precise moment now why we are talking, because she, she wrote her master thesis, her LNM thesis on the topic uh, in particular. She wrote about a treatment for viral deception, automated moderation of COVID-19 disinformation. So the, the other reason, uh, um, um, in addition to her expertise in general, is her specific expertise in the domain of uh, COVID-19 related disinformation. Julia, so good to have you here. What is the major outcome of your thesis in three minutes, if this is possible at all? <laughs> um, hello, good evening also from my side. Many thanks for having me. Um, so indeed, I have just finalized my LLM master thesis on COVID-19 online disinformation. And of course, it's difficult to summarize it in a couple of minutes, but I would say that kind of starting from looking at how content is curated, moderated, and really kind of like spreads online the way also information is, is accessed and, and, and received and shared in today's kind of digital age via platforms. Um, there is an, an impact, of course, um, on right, the rights to freedom of opinion, to freedom of information, to freedom of expression. And if we look at disinformation and COVID-19 disinformation specifically, of course, it's a very, very interesting um, angle to look at how the online sphere and the digital ecosystem and the rules and the policies of the platforms mm -hmm. kind of relate to this phenomenon of, of disinformation. And I would say that the, the main findings, and I'm sure we will go into more detail on, on how online content governance, I say content governance kind of as an umbrella term for content moderation. So the question of how information is filtered or kind of automation is used to detect and filter out or act upon specific content and content curation, which is the second kind of side of the same coin looking at how the vast amounts of information, ideas and content online is sorted, ranked, promoted, and demoted. So all of this I refer to when I speak about content governance. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there, um, uh, when we look at disinformation, it, of course, interrelates to all of these different levels. Um, and in my thesis, I look at how the policies and the use of automation to implement the policies by the platforms um, impact on the spread of disinformation, but also the moderation of disinformation. And mm-hmm. the outcomes, uh, the findings of the thesis are very much looking at the responses by states and platforms. Mm-hmm. And in short, um, the main finding is that the responses by states have been partly problematic from a human rights perspective, but also the responses and measures that the platforms themselves undertook have been um, inadequate to a certain degree, but also have been very diverging to how they acted previously. So it's kind of an, a turning point on how they govern content online. And then kind of the underlying or main outcome, I would say, is that that I conclude kind of by saying there is, regardless of how many mitigation measures there are to the challenges of online disinformation, as long as the digital ecosystem um, looks as it looks today, where we have like a few very dominant platforms that determine which content is promoted which content is taken down um, and they use automation, which is error prone and might be biased and is not, not reliable in, in the sense of really differentiating between um, information in particular, when we speak about disinformation mm-hmm. um, that we need to kind of change the design of this underlying rules so that there is really an underlying need to address the socio-technical context of how information online um, um, spreads is, is, is curated. Um, and that that means that we need to kind of redefine the business models and business practices that are very um, profit-oriented, data harvesting-oriented, advertising um, uh, oriented. And if we really want to address online disinformation, in particular now also, of course, with this COVID um, factor, then we need to get to the roots kind of and to this underlying need to really addressing um, the business practices and business models. Mm-hmm. And how would you do this? I mean, addressing, do you mean writing academic papers about uh, the business models or, would you, or, or, or providing laws? And if so, on which level? Yeah, I mean, as always, of course, uh, a complex issue kind of requires complex responses too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we would need to look at the content moderation curation at one side and the use of automation for it. And there are already a lot of measures have been identified that would really help to mm-hmm. mitigate the risks and the challenges. Speaking about transparency, um, speaking about mm-hmm. accountability, redress mechanism, human rights impact assessments, there's a long list of things mm-hmm. that has also already been identified as being potentially useful mm-hmm. um, and as addressing the challenges. Um, then, of course, if we speak about addressing disinformation, we also have to look at the complex responses needed to the different layers of disinformation because some information might be misleading, some information might be um, state-led, some information, uh, disinformation might be um, like inciting to violence or discrimination. So again, here we will need different responses. Um, mm. Some will require regulatory responses, yes. Um, but of course, the, the broader range of disinformation, not especially from a human rights perspective. Um, and then the third 
big pillar, I would say, in this conversation is really how much um, kind of uh, margins of appreciation um, a few private actors should have when we speak about how they shape and arbitrate our information space. Meaning what exactly? I didn't understand the the end, I think, exactly. Do, do you mean that that Facebook and, and Google and YouTube and the others should be even more in focus than they are at the moment? I mean that there should be some kind of regulatory framework of how far they can decide about certain things themselves. Um, okay. But here, referring back to your question on which level, of mm. course, this is nothing that can be solved on the national level because, I mean, information, the information space is arguably even one today, mm. uh, one global. And if we look at this um, very dominant and, and, and powerful internet intermediaries or platforms, also the ones you just mentioned, they, of course, act uh, on a global scale. Mm. So the responses, of course, also need to be multilateral and also multi-stakeholder. Yeah, so... Uh, if I understand that correctly, you mean that something like the DSA or the DMA are a nice first attempt, but they will not suffice, right? It needs more of global approaches. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, um, regional approaches uh, such as the, the DSA mm -hmm. and DMA are, of course, um, 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 way better and, and rather um, able to also um, address the challenges than only a national law. And I mm -hmm. think that we have seen also when we look back at, for example, data protection, that also legislation by the European Union, even though it is kind of limited in scope, it can have an influence on the global scale. Mm -hmm. And if you have a market like the European Union market um, with 5 million um, potential users or individuals being affected by it, then of course they are 500 the, million sorry uh, not 5 million yeah <laughs> thanks million. for the correction yeah. yes 500 yeah. um, then of course the companies might also change their policies just mm -hmm. in principle thereby also benefiting the remaining the remaining people who use it outside of the european union yeah and do you think then i mean one of the one of my remarks on the situation at the moment would be that i see and you also said this before that that the platforms have changed their policy quite significantly because of covid and we see quite dramatic changes in the sense of that they are actively at least in my view they are actively not only prioritizing things but also moderating and and with all caution i say censoring although i know of course that this is a very problematic term censoring content much different than they did before although there is not yet such a global hard law rule that you might think about when you are arguing that we should put them more into focus so um do you think that what we see here by COVID is now something which will develop on its own regulatory attempts, which will finally lead into a situation that is better than the one that we have at the moment, hopefully? Or do you think that this is something which needs attention of any of the global bodies that one might think of that could take care of this? I would probably say all of the above, because mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's two different sides because we have seen this shift in how they moderate and create content, even though there is no regulatory push, even though you could also argue that the pressure also from governments to react to online disinformation has increased, of course, also during mm -hmm. the pandemic, because we have just seen that the, the 
risks that this information has on individual and public health has been very obvious, of course, in this pandemic. So um, there was an increasing pressure on platforms to act upon this disinformation. But I would say that the like their reactions and their kind of like shift in how they act and react and what they promote and how proactive they are mm-hmm. um, has gone beyond this pressure. So there was also something, be it like out of business interest or maybe altruistic or whatever, but mm-hmm. the platforms have really changed their their um, their way of governing content from already several years on, I would argue, but really Mm -hmm. like extremely um, accelerating these trends in the last one and a half years since the pandemic. Mm. Um, and here, I think that that it is clear, like also if you look at the discussion and how the platforms presented themselves only a couple of years ago, they were very reluctant in, in saying that they even have a role to play, right? In mm. the dissemination of information. They would declare themselves as being mere conduits of information. And mm. they have been becoming more and more active, I would say. And now in the last one and a half years, they have taken on even more kind of like media-like functions because they mm. really proactively provided links to health authorities, to the WHO. Um, they have really um, sorted information in a way more kind of extreme way than they did before. And they also have publicly stated that they do have a role to play. So mm-hmm. this is a very interesting, I think, development. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is kind of paired with the increasing pressure by states, but also by the public, I would say, mm-hmm. that there's really a need for them to, to kind of stand up against this information. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the regularly, regularly kind of responses or potential um, consequences out of this are, I think, also um, pot- potentially accelerated because they're doing more by themselves. And mm-hmm. we can also see that some of the content is actually being removed and that it might be positive or negative. Um, so this might also um, even more um, bring governments to, to their willingness to produce new law or regulations around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also we see this, of course, now in the European context, where in addition to the, to the DSA and the DMA, there are also other more like co-regulatory or self-regulatory approaches like the code um, of conduct against disinformation where of course also there has been a push over the last one and a half years. So I think there are really different layers to it um, and they are all interrelated. So they all influence one another and the more platforms do, the more governments might also ask them to do um, or see that it's possible to also shift responsibilities to them, which also is not always um, something that is that or which also entails its own, its own challenges and mm-hmm. um, when kind of like responsibilities are outsourced because sometimes it's also kind of bypassing the safeguards that we have just in a rule of law procedure mm-hmm. um, but of course that the, I would say also the public kind of understanding of, of the role of platforms to address this information has shifted a lot in the last one and a half or two years by now almost. Yeah, would you would you agree with me that COVID is one important part of the picture, and the other one is the deplatforming of uh, Trump? I would say that that has clearly shifted the conversation, mm-hmm. um, and you could see that a lot of people who were maybe not that much into discussions 
discussing the policies or even like thinking about it also found themselves arguing about mm -hmm. um, has this been right or not. And thereby, I think that this conversation, regardless of to which conclusion you come, because there are very strong arguments for kind of both sides, but they came to, a lot of people came to realize that the sheer kind of power and dominance these platforms have. And mm -hmm. I think that this is an important um, step in development. Also, when we talk about we need more transparency and just like, literacy and understanding of how our information space works and functions today. Mm -hmm. Transparency is a key point. You, you, you mentioned that several times now. Um, and, and I think it's interesting because when, when, when we are talking about transparency in the public sector, that's easy in a sense, not in Austria, by the way, because we have a long, <laughs> long story of, of, of talking about transparency without being transparent, but it's still relatively easy. When it comes to the private sector, it's not that easy because the, the, the typical argument, of course, obviously is that everything that asks for, for transparency goes into potentially into business secrecy and, and is in conflict with business secrecy, which might lead to Conflicts of fundamental rights, obviously, right? So freedom of information on the one hand, uh, property protection on the other would be the most obvious one of those conflicts. So how how should we deal with this? And, and then there's on top of this, there's also obviously the fundamental rights of the general public. Um, I mean, there are three players at the table here. So how do you think that we can 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 steer this debate in in Austria first, in Europe second, and globally third? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think as always, and this is kind of the response from, from the human rights perspective, we need to find the proportionality within it, mm -hmm. right? So, of course, there is the, the valid point by private companies to say they have their business secrecy. Also, when we speak about like a lot of transparency, we also have the data protection aspect. Mm -hmm. um, but there are several possibilities as also, I mean, I don't think people... Or, or advocates or international organizations that call for more transparency mean that the, the platform should kind of like just lay open everything or lay open the detailed code of their automation, because this mm -hmm. would, of course, be um, something that's also just from an economic interest, very valuable. Mm -hmm. um, but there can be a tired approach. There can be like transparency that is needed for users of these services to say they should be able to be empowered to have user agency. They should be able to know um, which policies affect them, where automation is involved, and how um, it is determined with what content they are targeted at what time. Mm -hmm. um, so this is like one level of transparency that I don't think could be argued, kind of argued away with mm -hmm. the, with the um, business secrecy um, argument. And then there could be like a second layer of transparency, for example, for regulators or for an independent social media council, which has also been proposed by, by some, um, or, and they could, for example, receive um, more information also on details, um, like the, the use of automation, how their codes are being designed, how they're being produced, which data sets feed into it. Because we know from, from several studies and currently because of this lack of access to data and to the information, it is very, very difficult, if not impossible in some instances, to assess um, or to even know where automation is used and to assess how this um, automation has been developed, how it has been designed and 
to which degree it is used, how much human involvement or human overview is still involved. And all of this information is needed to assess um, the potential impact, the potential discriminatory impacts, the biases that might be involved. Um, and it, of course, doesn't need to be like everything fully transparent and out in, out in the open, but mm. there needs to be some kind of democratic public oversight overview. Mm -hmm. And this is transparency. Uh, this is what the complexity of transparency that kind of I refer to, but also a lot of um, um, and different also papers and, and organizations and civil society organizations refer to that there needs to be in the end, like transparency is, is the foundation of really the scrutiny we need, um, that public oversight, and in the end, also, of course, like accountability and mm. just having kind of checks and balances in place as we ask for, for pretty much everything uh, yeah. in a democratic uh, context. Yeah. Let me come back to the transparency once again, because I would argue that at least two other fields of the law, um, consumer protection and data protection, both of them has have as a common root that there should be more transparency in, in, in their domain, right? And both of them, in my view at least, and I want to provoke you a little bit here now, both of them failed dramatically because both of them led into a situation where consumers or data subjects are, are shot by sheer amounts of you know, unnecessary information under the presumption that that might be transparency-related information. And at the same time, nobody really reads this. Nobody cares about it. And we are clicking away everything all the time because it's annoying us and distracting us. So why should that be that different in your domain now? Because let me put it like this. I know perfectly well that when I'm looking into my Twitter feed, this looks very different from yours and in particular, very different from those who are of a fundamentally different opinion when it comes to COVID-related issues than I am, I know this already. What should it? What would it change now if I were informed in every single tweet now? Listen, this was selected because you you were clicking on this or you are interested in that. Would that really change anything, or don't you think that it would lead again in the same situation? We would end up in the same situation, just like in consumer and data protection, which is not really a success story in my view. No, I mean, it's a very valid point. And I think there are several several kind of aspects to unpack there because, mm -hmm. I mean, of course you are well aware of it, but that doesn't mean that everybody is well aware of it as a first mm -hmm. point. And the second, I think what we always have to keep in mind when we speak about transparency is that transparency is only a means, but mm -hmm. never the end goal, right? So transparency mm -hmm. should be leading to more accountability, oversight, and, and a strengthening of human rights. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, I kind of agree with you that, especially when we look at the data protection, um, mm -hmm. um, that the focus on only procedural safeguards and, and, and transparency has not been sufficient. And mm -hmm. here I would kind of like draw the link and say also when we speak about content governance by private actors that are so powerful that they really impact kind of information per se and information spaces. And if mm -hmm. they use automation for it, um, then transparency alone can of course not, not solve it. Um, mm -hmm. But transparency needs to be part of a, a broader kind of like accountability framework. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the transparency should not be in the sense of like you consent to something. Mm -hmm. um, and it, 
it can only be to a certain degree, but I fully agree, and this is something I also state, um, for example, in my thesis, that there needs to be kind of like some red lines. So some mm -hmm. issues that would need to be identified that cannot be solved merely with, with consent or, or knowledge mm -hmm. or transparency. Um, and this, I think, is particularly important also when we speak about human rights, because they are always focusing on the individual, right? Mm -hmm. But we, we know that many of these challenges we talk about, including disinformation and online information, um, they they have the potential to harm collectively, maybe mm. not an individual person because of an in individual tweet, but they may really disow kind of trust in democratic processes in independent media and institutions. So there is also this additional layer that I think needs to be addressed, um, which cannot be addressed by providing individual users of a platform with transparency or with the possibility mm. to redress, mm -hmm. because it's also always about the costs involved and the resources involved. And when we speak about we want to empower users, then it needs to be, it needs to go beyond. So mm -hmm. I would say transparency is crucial, but it's not sufficient in itself. Yeah. You said at the beginning that you were not that content about what states did so far and that states did not really uh, perform very well when it comes to how to deal with this online disinformation issue in in con in covid related matters i would i would like to ask you whether you think that this is also the case because transparency is not really a priority at the moment when it comes to legislative actions such as the austrian law on communication platforms kommunikationsplattformen gesetz or the german uh, network enforcement law the netzwerkdurchsetzungsgesetz i don't see too much about transparency there but I see a lot of notice and takedown <laughs> in, in rather short periods. Uh, would you agree with me that this is perhaps one of the arguments why one could not be that happy about how states worked on the situation? Or would you put the perspective differently? I would put a focus on, or I would, I would say the main challenge is if we kind of limit also the regulatory discussions around content. And this mm -hmm. is what the Kommunikationsplattformen Gesetz and the Netzligate do quite much with this notice and takedown mm -hmm. procedures that, of course, yes, they speak about procedures, but they always focus on a specific individual illegal content and platforms need to act about. Um, and I think that what we see um, increasingly also, for example, with the um, legislative proposals uh, in the European context, that there is kind of a shift towards more like duty of care or more this really mm -hmm. transparency accountability frameworks and, and risks assessment and risk miti mitigation measures, which I think are just way more sustainable. They're way more human rights friendly than focusing on specific content. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, I think when we speak about disinformation and not precisely about illegal content as, as, as the Netzige or the Kommunikationsplattform, mm -hmm. it even adds an additional layer of complexity because disinformation yeah. very often, of course, doesn't fall within this category, but still needs to be addressed just in different ways. Um, and, and, and then, of course, just one additional sentence here that also a lot of um, countries or, or regions have introduced um, since, since COVID new legislation really focusing mm -hmm. on disinformation. And mm -hmm. there, I think, um, this response by states has been particularly um, um, problematic mm -hmm. because they very often base um, terminology on very vague concepts or even say 
um, disinformation is content that is false, um, mm. which also raises a lot of questions just from our rule of law perspective, um, but also open, of course, the door for misuse and arbitrariness, which is very problematic for democratic discourse, for, for dissidents, for having a conversation also about the health measures that have been adopted, how successful they were, um, and of course, uh, detrimental from a human rights perspective. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting point in my view, because one of the of, of the main stories that I read when I read about uh, complaints of people who are, let's put it like this, critical against what's happening in, in, uh, in the policy field when it comes to COVID-19, many of those people argue that they are not allowed to freely share their opinion, that they are censored, that YouTube and others uh, don't let them explain what they are uh, what they think that the truth is telling them um, or, or makes them to tell. And this, of course, um, is a problematic argument in, in a discourse which is about what is scientifically proven, what is debatable, and what is clearly wrong, right? You, you can't argue with someone who's constantly arguing that he or she can't tell you what he thinks because he's deleted from the network. That's a problem in this whole COVID-19 disinformation debate, in my view. And interestingly, in my view, at least, the major platforms such as YouTube are seen as 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 part of the problem by those deniers, right? So it's they are constantly arguing YouTube is censoring us. So YouTube has, in a way, the, the issue that, that the state tells them that they are not monitoring enough. And at the same time, the, the, the minorities affected by this monitoring tell them that they are censoring them. And it's very difficult to navigate through this, in my view. And the outcome of this is that there are alternative platforms rising, such as Telegram or Vimeo or how they all, all the others, you know them better than I do, which are not really easy to regulate because you can't access them as a state authority. In some cases, you do not even know who is behind this. Um, and, and do you think that there is a, a, this, this threat of escape so that we are just going in this debate, which is not really new, by the way, it goes back to the 70s, this escape of digital sovereignty just in the next stage then? And we end up in just less enforceability at the very end? I mean, yes, it's a risk, but also I don't think it's it's the most, the biggest concern in yeah. this very complex discussion. Because, I, I mean, the problem of, of people who, while using those services, accusing those services of not being mm. able to speak out or in general, and um, complaining about the lack of freedom while using their freedom mm. of expression, um, um, is, of course, a very complex challenge that I would say is even like on a societal level and cannot be resolved mm. in, in this conversation. But of course, um, if, if content is removed, and this again kind of links back to why I think a mere focus on content and which content is problematic or which content needs to be removed um, is not productive, potentially counterproductive even, um, because if, if a content of such a person that you're just mentioning, for example, is removed, that might also be understood as kind of like a proof of, of, of that they're being silenced or even mm -hmm. like a badge of honor or something. And, mm -hmm. and if 
this and this can thereby contribute to pushing those people into either alternative platforms or also even more in in polarizing, radicalizing filter bubbles or kind of echo chambers. And if that leads to them um, leaving platforms and services that have at least a limited and minimum amount uh, and level of, of reachability, transparency, and at least a connect still to the public debate where also um, 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 other views are still kind of part of the discourse, at least in the broader sense, even if it doesn't reach the individual, mm -hmm. um, then of course it is a problem if it pushes it out. Um, but at the same time, I don't th think that this risk alone could like sh should lead to a situation where we say, okay, that means we shouldn't address this content or we shouldn't remove it. It just means that we have to pay additional attention to also new emerging platforms that we need to be open and that we really need to find ways where the digital sphere um, has some kind of general rules and frameworks that ideally could, of course, be enforced everywhere. But that is a little bit, of course, um, 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 to a certain degree, also wishful thinking, because there will always be new kind of, of platforms and, and layers. Mm -hmm. um, but also, all of these services can, to a certain degree, be, be pressured or be tried to be reached um, and just because you mentioned Telegram now, of course, mm -hmm. there's also this discussion with, with taking this question of moderation or like the rules that they apply to the next level when we, when we speak about app stores or like if they should, if they don't apply specific rules um, and if they're not reachable for regulators, for the government, for, um, um, for the public, and if they don't have any redress um, accountability, transparency, maybe this should not be allowed to be such a service. Mm. Then it, we come to the next level where we say, okay, and who decides whether mm -hmm. they're allowed and, and not, which kind of links back to the question of who has that kind of power to decide upon in the end, the information space. And if it's then again, like in the app stores of, of, of um, Apple, Google, whatever, it kind of only entrenches more their power. Indeed, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I think that that in 2021 and now almost 2022, we know that public discourse and private conversation uh, communication takes place mainly online. And mm -hmm. these platforms are not, they are not a media, like legacy media, of course, but they're also not a, a, a platform where they have no um, influence because their policies and their architecture even mm. um, shapes how information is, is, is possible to take place. Therefore, I think as there are somewhere in between, it is very valid to just say, okay, there is also a set of rules, a set of kind of frameworks and pillars that, that need to be in place for such a platform to be able to provide such a service, such as with many other sectors and, and, and economic sectors also, there are specific rules in place. So I think the question is how to enforce this, as you mentioned before. Mm. Um, but I don't think that we're even at this point of discussion um, in, in, in the public discourse yet. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you use the term architecture, which is borrowed by Lawrence Lessig from 1999 about yes. code and other laws of cyberspace. So that's one of the starting points of the debate, I think. Uh, and also very interesting for me that you are mentioning here so clearly that 
that there might be a meta level of regulation now regulating the platforms that regulate platforms, right? Ending up again in a duopoly because it's either <laughs> either Google then or 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 Apple, um, and that's a very very strange uh, situation we are in, which obviously again triggers the question how. Transnational organizations such as the United Nations or the OSCE, just to mention that now again, how they find their role in all this, and and perhaps you could Julia explain to me because I'm not really very familiar with this how the OSCE behaves in all this and and how how your how how the office of the representative on freedom of the media positions their self in this uh, in this debate is there any impact coming from there in in the in the day-to-day -day political debate yes absolutely so i think i mean we kind of started off with saying we need international and multilateral yeah. responses to this multilateral and, and global challenges and i think that that is very important that all the organizations and all different actors who also work on 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 be it democracy, human rights, or security kind of play a role and also mm. complementary address it. And that is also really the approach also by the OSE, which I think has a very kind of interesting and different starting point because the OSE is a security organization and a dialogue mm. cooperation organization. But at the same time, it, it, it recognized very early on that human rights are an integral part of this. Um, and the representative on freedom of the media, of course, is an autonomous institution within that framework. Mm. Um, but that also means that that we or, or the representative will look at um, uh, the, the challenges to freedom of the media, the challenges to freedom of speech. And of course, if we refer now to COVID-19 disinformation, it had li has links to pretty much everything that, that the office has been working on over the years, like digital transformation, but also what we see increasingly like an anti-media sentiments. It's connected to safety of journalists. It's connected to plurality mm. and, and freedom of expression. So of course, it's also something that is very, very valid to, to our kind of mandate and the role that the mm. OEC plays. But at the same time, I think we have a, a, a little bit of a different role than, for example, other international actors. I mean, the European Union, of course, with kind of the ability to produce hard law is, is, is a specific mm -hmm. setting anyway. Um, but, but the focus of, um, of the OSE, I would say, is to really provide... Um, policy guidance through this dialogue. And this is something um, that, that we do regularly. So we have also a project focusing specifically on, on the impact of AI on freedom of expression, on, on which I work too. Um, and here we really aim at providing states with guidance on how they should in, introduce and ensure free speech safeguards when they, for example, think about regulating AI or when they think of, of, of introducing other measures. Mm -hmm. and, and, we, and with this dialogue kind of focus that the OSE has, we focus very much on also bringing good practice example, um, having this dialogue and providing this kind of platform of bringing together expertise, also academic expertise, and linking it to the policymaking directly. Mm -hmm. And does that work also in the sense that you are monitoring and trying to influence the, the debate on the AI regulation in, in Europe at the moment? And is there an opinion, an, an official opinion available of the OECE on the, on the regulation draft as we see it? Yeah, I mean, pre 
preliminary, the OSCE is, is of course, acting towards the participating states. Mm. So we are covering basically the Northern Hemisphere from from North America to former Soviet Union and everything Mm. kind of in between. Um, The European Union as such is not a a participating state, but kind of a collective. Um, We do very much, um, of course, monitor also what the EU does, and we are involved informally, but also formally in several like working groups and vice versa. Um, But for example, what we often do with national legislation that we also offer a legal review or that Mm -hmm. we really also provide detailed kind of recommendations on how we think the freedom of the media and and freedom of expression aspect could be strengthened within the specific law is something that we wouldn't do with the European Union just because it doesn't fit in in, in the in, in the setup. But of course we are part of the conversation and, and we also include the European Union to a certain degree, of course, in, in the policy development that, that we do. Because their main aim is of course to find global solutions. Um, But for the AI Act, we do not have like an official public statement yet, Mm -hmm. but we, um, of course, uh, monitor it closely and also try to bring in our perspective in the conversation at the EU. Yeah, and your 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 thesis is right at the edge of all this, right? I would expect that to be probably the the most insightful paper <laughs> at the moment available on this on on this interplay. Uh, Julia, I think uh, we we managed to to have a very very good overview at the moment, and but uh, but there's one remaining question which I would really love to hear from you and answer on, which is. No, two actually. The first one is whether you whether you would like to comment on the Austrian specificities of the debate. Um, so whether you see Austria in this game somewhere outstanding, and if so, why? That would be question one. And question two would be: as this pandemic is not going to disappear, um, unfortunately, in the next days, it would be very interesting to hear from you what you think how this will further develop this debate on automated content moderation in this in this period that is coming now where we might expect even more pressure from the pandemic on the one hand and even more pressure from the minorities claiming that they are not a minority claiming that they are censored etc overheating the political debate on the other hand and again with the platforms in the in the middle of this needing to needing to try to follow their business model although both sides are developing pressure on them so first austria second future let me start with with the second maybe yeah. if, if if i may um i mean i think that that the crisis as also previously other crises in other contexts have acted kind of an as an accelerator mm-hmm. of many of the trends and also the, the discussion and the um, conversation we are having. And I think that we have seen like a shift how platforms govern content. We have seen a shift towards more use of automation. And that was also caused in the beginning of the crisis just by like they also needed to send their staff home, right? Just for epidemiologic reasons. Um, But often when you test something in our crisis, then it stays on, right? So I would also imagine that this this, um, shift that we have seen in in the measures, responses that uh, platforms take, um, that they will last. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Um, and to a certain degree, I would argue we can already see that because quite recently, um, um, YouTube has announced that they will now have the same kind of policies they have for um, misleading COVID-19 vaccination disinformation. They will apply the same also to other vaccinations. Because mm. so far in the conversation we're having, we have really seen that COVID-19 related disinformation has been kind of dealt with in a silo. So all these different um, uh, measures we have been discussing today um, have been deployed differently for COVID-19 information than for any other. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that we will see that this will be kind of like taking over. Um, and there is certainly something um, I'm kind of like challenging from a human rights perspective, because in a crisis, there is, of course, more flexibility or also a need to react differently. But if it's then just being accepted, if it without the safeguards, the human rights safeguards, because they are not kind of like um, um, built in from the beginning, then there is a risk. And that's also the same if like governments ask platforms to make the legal assessment of whether content is illegal or not, that mm -hmm. might be tested in a specific um, crisis, be it following a terrorist attack or now in the context of the pandemic. Um, but these kind of regulations tend to last. Mm -hmm. So I do think that that this shift um, will be kind of like permanent or more towards permanent. But mm -hmm. at the same time, this will also influence the regulatory discussion a lot um, uh, and thereby kind of potentially also this saying of don't waste a good crisis um, will be mm -hmm. hopefully to a certain, certain degree being valid because I think that that really also the public awareness and understanding of the role of those platforms, how much it impacts um, the information forming process of individuals and of societies, the impact of it has been way more discussed, way more seen. And I think that this is very crucial in, in, in the times mm -hmm. we live in. Um, and again, interrelates, of course, with regulation, uh, regulatory processes. Mm -hmm. um, and towards Austria, I mean, of course, when, when you live in a specific country, you always tend to see there are some peculiarities or like some spe special situations. But for me, kind of like taking a step back from really working on this in a more kind of international um, um, or multilateral um, scene, I, I would not say that there is something like very particular that in Austria um, is different when we speak about content moderation or content governance. Um, but I think that something that is really relevant for Austria also is to really engage in this finding a solution on a more regional or global level. Um, and, and the communications platform you said, for example, was like one step towards saying we do not want to wait anymore, really want to address several of these challenges um, with its own, like for better or worse. But I think it's really crucial for especially a small country like Austria, where information is very, very important also from neighboring countries where dialogue is very often also in the general kind of like German speaking area, that it's even more important to really have this kind of um, approach towards like uh, beyond the borders and really trying to find um, solutions mm -hmm. um, on, on a ideally global level. Yeah. Okay. So let's see what the future is going to bring us here. Julia, is there anything that you want to mention that I didn't ask about? 
maybe I just want to mention one thing that I that that I thought about yesterday again because I mean as you probably I mean certainly know this year the the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to mm. to journalists right for the mm. first time actually since um, the Second World War and I think um, especially Maria Ressa um, who is one of the laureates has been continuously pointing out this interplay between platform power information spaces also disinformation also really the gendered aspect that mm. we haven't talked about today but that of course mm. is also very relevant in this context and and she something she said in in her lecture in Oslo when she received the prize is summarizes I think it, it it's very nice because she starts with saying um, information spaces kind of determines everything else in our world because this is the starting point and at the same time she says if if we don't have trust and if we don't have facts then we cannot have a shared reality. And a shared reality, of course, is the starting point for addressing any of the challenges we are facing these days, be it the pandemic or climate change or anything else. Mm. So I think this is a nice kind of like summarizing factor on the one hand, and at the same also, at the same time, also a motivator to really continue to address this issue and trying to find human rights safeguarding solutions to the challenging, to the very, very complex and challenging um, situation we are finding ourselves in. Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. And trust is certainly one of the key terms that we are going to discuss yeah. quite intensely in 2022, I'm quite sure. Julia, it was a pleasure and an honor, and I learned really a lot from you, and I'm sure that our listeners did the same. Thank you so much for sharing your outcomes of the thesis, but also your thoughts on the matter in addition to the thesis with us. One very last question. Are you going to publish the thesis somewhere? I, I do plan so, but I don't know where yet. Okay, but I will. so let I will. us know, please. Let yes. us know when you're publishing this. I will be very interested to, to read it then again, although I read it obviously already, but to read it then again and also to share the news where you can Thanks. buy this or where you can read this. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Stay healthy, uh, stay interested and stay connected with us. All the best. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for having me. Bye.